At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Blog Talk Radio. isn't a once a year occasion and once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared you'll still want them to know how much you care dare to give a gift that lasts this valentine's day with our incredible selection of jewelry from delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds jared has hundreds of pieces under 299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host as always, John Casillo, and with me is Dan Lyons. Hello everyone, thanks for uh, coming back to us after a brief summer sabbatical. Yeah, we uh, we had stuff going on, and admittedly there wasn't a ton of things happening um, on the Syracuse front. So yeah, we were... Uh, we're back in business now, and uh, last week was, was incredibly busy for the Orange. Uh, I guess we'll start off with some recruiting. Um, now, Dan, SU had uh, three commitments that they were able to act on and, and another one that, that we'll see uh, what happens with. Um, who out of the three um, that Syracuse is, is accepting um, are you kind of most excited about? Um, I think all three are, are pretty exciting. I have to go with Mo Neal. Um, you know, kind of the obvious answer, he's a skill position player. He's a guy that's been on our radar for a while. But I think he helps uh, shore up uh, Robert Washington's commitment. Not that there's any any real, you know, we don't know what, what if he's wavering or anything that hasn't been said. But obviously keeping having Mo come, um, both gives a good sign that Robert is still pretty solid in his commitment. And also, if there was uh, any idea of switching that up, it's harder to decommit when you have a, a, one of your best friends in the team. So that's, you know, that's always nice to get. Um, he's also a really good player in his own right. Uh, he has his, his stats um, are pretty mind-blowing. He had over 2,000 rushing yards last year, 29 touchdowns, I think, and you know, not not you know, North Carolina is not exactly Florida or Georgia, but it's still a pretty good football state. It's not like he's doing this up in New Hampshire. So he's a very exciting player. Um, I think we'll understand a little bit more of what he can do once we see what the H back slash press back slash whatever role is in this offense uh, this coming season with guys like Eric Phillips. 
But um, yeah, he's he's the one that has me most excited. Although I think all three guys that we that we took are pretty pretty solid players and and kind of fit in what we've been doing in terms of um, the quality of player that we've been bringing in this class. Agreed. Um, I think in general, like the Washington point is a good one. And if Sean brought it up, I brought it up. Um, and you and I have discussed in the podcast too. Um, bringing in Neil really does uh, does seem to solidify Washington. It's not that. Again, not that he was ever wavering, but that we really haven't heard much from Robert um, since he first committed. It seemed like there was a flurry of some interviews and some conversations with some of the local media. And since then, um, he's been pretty quiet about SU on um, social media, outside the occasional just kind of retweets. Um, again, it hasn't really been – it's not like he's swinging toward another school, at least outwardly, but um, you know, definitely haven't seen a ton from him, so it's good. Um, you know, seeing Neil's commitment, that that really would help um, shore him up. I know in general, um, you know, what SU really need is uh, skilled players with some speed, um, guys who can make plays. It seems that that Neil definitely qualifies there. For anyone who hasn't um, seen some of the highlight tape, I would highly recommend it. Uh, It's a really, really good um, just kind of glimpse into the type of talent um, that Neil is right now and, and kind of what he can develop to, into for SU as a hybrid uh, back as it currently stands. Um, so yeah, I think Neil does check that box. I do want more, I guess, info and just in general, like I'd just love to learn more about uh, Monclavi and Brinson. Uh, you know, Brinson is another guy being brought in to really fix the SU secondary, which has been problematic of late. Um, and in general, you know, I, I think that uh, Brinson is is indicative of the type of guys that we are now uh, getting on a regular basis. And I think that's awesome um, to see, you know, guys from Atlanta, guys from Miami, um, all three stars. I mean, for the most part, we're really going after um, players that at one point would have been probably, you know, at the top of the class and now, you know, part of the – and it's not to take anything away from Brinson, but, you know – Brinson is now part of the course for the Orange, and we're regularly getting guys over at schools like Kentucky and Louisville and Mississippi State and Indiana uh, and a bunch of others, um, both in and out of the ACC. Um, so for me, while I think Neil um, has a ton of possibilities um, on his own as well as for Washington, um, I think Brinson is, is is a member of a larger group, uh, you know, with this secondary that can really, really change the game for an orange team that hasn't done well defending the pass in recent years. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And Brinson both was a guy who, he was on our radar. Um, I think the Syracuse internet has become very good at, at learning pretty much everyone the school's involved with. So there's very few true surprise commitments, but he wasn't a guy that I think many expected to be uh, the commitment when he happened. Um, he kind of took us by surprise which is nice that the staff is still has a, a couple cards up their sleeve. But uh, I just just looked at the numbers. Out of the 14 current commitments, we have seven guys that are from the South. Um, we have three Georgians. Uh, so I guess they weren't offended by, you know, Pete from two years ago that really was innocuous. <laughs> um, three, uh, Flor- or two Florida kids um, and two North Carolina guys. So I, I think – Obviously, we want to be a player in the Northeast, and we and we have been so far this year. We have three really solid New Jersey players. We had a couple, a bunch more last class. 
Uh, one of the better guys out of New York in Taylor Riggins, who uh, I think could end up being the surprise player of the class. And then we have a guy from Pennsylvania where you always want to be involved, good football state. So right now I, th- I think the, the breakdown of where we're getting players from is very healthy. I think if you are Syracuse and you can make up half your class from Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, the, the DMV area, um, I think you're in pretty good shape. And then you want to obviously be a player for any type of New York kids, which is an ongoing battle for Syracuse, as we all know, uh, but also obviously the, the heart of the New Jersey and the Pennsylvania uh, classes, which are always a lot stronger than New York. So I, I really like the uh, geographic breakdown of this class so far. It's, it's definitely, I think, heavier on the Southern kids than what we've had in the last however many years. Usually we have a handful, but um, I think having half and half is, is a really good sign. Agreed. I mean, in general, um, you know, we've done a great job of, of walking into places like Massachusetts and Connecticut um, and grabbing some of the top guys out um, without much issue uh, in recent years. And I think, you know, we saw on our last few Big East classes, it was, it was a lot of New York. I mean, Marone really made it a, a focus to grab those New York kids. Um, it was, you know, a lot of Massachusetts, a lot of Connecticut. Um, and then we were starting to kind of you know, dip a little bit into um, Miami um, in particular and, and Georgia. I think in the last couple of classes, you're seeing a, a big shift for SU. Um, like you said, a uh, bunch of Florida kids, a bunch of Georgia kids, um, whether it's Miami or the Tampa area, that it seems like we're now creating a pipeline with the Plant High School, which is a huge, huge uh, coup for SU if they can continue that, uh, given all the talent coming out of that area. Um, plus, I mean, most importantly is, is the New Jersey reestablishment. Um, that SU's been able to, to pull off in recent years, um, but especially I think this year. And last year we had what four or five, and this year we already have uh, we have three. Uh, Jamal Holloway, who committed last week, uh, Sadie Palmer, who's one of the first commitments, all the way back in April, um, and then uh, Donnell Parker, who is also a, a teammate of Holloway right now um, over in Camden. So in, in general, yeah, I think we're we're following a blueprint that um, you know a lot of a lot of really good mid-major programs or ones that are very good at recruiting um, are able to pull off. Um, and you know what? Even when Wake was, was doing really well, uh, this is kind of what they were, were pulling off. They were grabbing uh, some great guys in Georgia, some great guys um, from Florida, uh, just people that, you know, they were three-star guys or like maybe not as uh, scouted two, two-star guys who just were able to fly under the radar. Um, and SU seems to be holding that pattern. What's most interesting to me um, is that now they're able to get highly touted guys in North Carolina and beating out North Carolina schools for their services. Um, I don't know when we end up heading up into the DMV area. I don't think we're there yet. Um, but I, I like the movement um, kind of, you know, surrounding that, that football hotbed um, from both the North and South now. Yeah, I'm looking at last year's class, and um, last year, which had uh, 27 players, including Dunkelberger and Matt Keller, the long snapper who enrolled early, um, two from Alabama, uh, three from Georgia, three from Florida, and then the one difference really is last year, A, we had more room to play with. Uh, this year, we're only expected to take, I guess, maybe 19 now players to Ashton Board. No, he would have graduated. So I think it's still 18 as of now, I'm sure. A couple of guys will leave, and it'll be around 20. So that's filled out a full class. Um, but a lot of that room is made up by uh, Ohio and Illinois, a couple more Midwestern kids, um, and then, you know, Eric Dungeon coming from Oregon, which is 
probably never going to be a, a hotbed for Syracuse, but um, overall, it looks like the focus has been, remained fairly consistent. Um, and I do think that the Midwest will still be play a part for Syracuse just this year. I think it just happens to have broken down the way it is because of the uh, smaller class that's expected to come in for, for SU in 2016. Yeah, I think it's really uh, – I mean, you're probably right there, um, that that's why we kind of drifted away from our normal spot. But when you think about it, so many Illinois kids in recent years, um, in, je- in particular, uh, and all guys who were you know, slated to produce, if not this year, next year for SU. Um, but, yeah, very funny to see a, uh, a, a staff mostly of, you know, former MAC coaches be able to walk down into uh, – into SEC country um, and just kind of grab, you know, these these fairly well-regarded kids, uh, you know, right in these and right in those teams and and in our own conferences backyard. Um, so I, I don't know, like you said, I don't know if it'll be a, a trend. Um, I would bet next year's ends up being uh, much more diverse again uh, with guys from the Midwest and the South. But no complaints from me, uh, you know, getting these types of players, especially again considering where they're the high schools are coming from. These aren't these aren't pushover schools, and you know, kids putting up ridiculous numbers. A lot of these kids are coming from some pretty solid football factories. Yeah, and I think that's something that it's easy to overlook, especially back in the Maroon years when we were getting so many New York City kids, which I didn't. I don't think was a bad idea, but you can't really deny that, you know, what the what the geographic um, dominant parts of the country are in terms of football. Like if you're, if you are a Northeastern school, you're just not going to be able to build a sustainable program um, out of the Northeast alone, unless you're Penn state and can totally dominate Pennsylvania and Maryland and Dickens, Ohio. But there's so few schools that can do that right now that uh, going and being a factor with the tier two, tier three, Florida kids and the kids like it's in Georgia, which, um, I don't think we ever really did with any regularity until Marone started going down there a little bit. Um, it, it's really important. So I'm, I'm really, I think the staff really knows what it's doing on the recruiting trail. Uh, people can complain about, you know, not being able to land the, the New York city type kids or, you know, the kids in the backyard, but if you can go pull a guy like Robert Washington or a guy like Mo Neal who has all those offers from his local schools out. I mean, I'm fine with that too. And I, I think, uh, the stuff that we've seen in the recruiting trail for the last two years has been very encouraging. And I know people have noted it, but things have only, if anything, they've gotten better without George McDonald. So I know that was a a concern and probably a pretty valid one when he was demoted and we kind of all knew he was going to be fired or leave or whatever. But um, it seems the staff has really picked it up, uh, really picked it up uh, since his departure. So it's, it's all good things for SU on the recruiting trail. So we just had to hope that the coaching staff can, have some of the same results in the field to match and get this thing going. Right. I mean, that's going to be the big part for this team. And I know we've talked about that on the site, um, and you and I have said it before um, on here as well. Um, good recruits are great, um, but at, at the same time, it's all about on-field results. Um, you know, good coaching can make good recruits great. Uh, bad coaching can make great recruits good. <laughs> so it, it does go both ways. Um, you do have to excel, um, you know, both in the recruiting game and the actual football game. Um, look to UVA is kind of case in point of, you know, while 
admittedly, the Who's defense uh, looks great, and you know we'll talk about the Coastal Division in a couple weeks um, in our season preview podcast. Um, the offense has just never clicked, um, and and it's it's getting harder and harder to avoid those comparisons. And I guess we'll see how it plays out um, this fall. But you know, I I, I do think that that this becomes um, if SU fails to get close to a bowl game, um, the Michael London type narrative becomes a, a prevailing um, kind of conversation point uh, throughout the season. If they they exceed expectations and, and suddenly you see a lot of promise, and, um, we have a lot of freshmen who are probably going to see some playing time this year. If those kids can come in and produce, um, I think the narrative you know is flipped on its head immediately. Yeah, and I've really been looking. Um more at the season as we get closer here. And I think I've come to the point where wins and losses are, are obviously going to be very important. You can't just rest on uh, moral victories in year three. But coming off of the season that Syracuse did, which was such a, a big disappointment, I almost feel like it's, it's almost like the uh, first year of Marone when we were just, you know, we won four games and we were just so happy to see a team that looked competent uh, versus what we saw with B-Rob this year before. And we kind of knew that even though, you know, the team lost a couple of games that should have won and, and could have made a bowl had they broken correctly, it, it was undeniable that there was an improvement in coaching. Um, but I think even if, if Syracuse was to go five and seven and maybe lose a couple heartbreaking games, if there, if, if, the difference between last year and this year is the same as it was from 08 to 09, and it just looked like the team knows what it was doing, knows what it was doing, and just for whatever reason couldn't quite pull out the sixth win. I think I'd be more okay with that than, you know, I think if there are just major coaching like gaps all over the place, then I think that's a major issue. Right, and you know what? I mean, I, I think. Well, I'm still going to play, you know, to be determined with this group. Uh, I said it in the uh, the Tim Lester, you know, offensive article the other day, um, you know, based on all the great, great stuff that Stephen Bailey put together on com. For the first time, we have, you know, some real tangible things to look at um, with Lester's offense. And, and honestly, I, I really liked what I what I heard when I saw. Um, and, and I think, you know, we'll again, we'll see, but. Um, for once, I am feeling a little bit better um, about this on-field product. And yeah, even you're right. Even if we do go five and seven, if it's a five and seven that that shows this team uh, to be much more competent, to be able to stay a little bit healthier, um, and overall to to provide watchable football, unlike last year's product, um, I'll be happy. Which, which seems weird um, in in the post-Marone world that that a five and seven season could could potentially have SU fans, uh, you know, looking on the bright side. I think also if it's a five and seven season and the offense looked pretty good and the defense is the issue, I think I'll, I'll swallow that pretty well because I know the staff in coach of a defense and I know how young this defense is. And I still expect it to be a pretty good team. I, I don't think the defensive unit is going to be, uh, I, I think the projections are understandable, but I, I think that I trust Schaefer and Bola and Doust and the rest. Um, to get at least a very solid front seven together. Um, I think there are issues in terms of potential pass rushing, but I think the linebacking core is going to be uh, upper echelon ACC, at least in terms of playmaking ability, even if they make some mistakes because they're young. 
But say the offense turns into a mid-level unit um, in Tim Lester and jumps like 30 or 35 spots in terms of offensive efficiency, and it's, you know, an average uh, FBS uh, unit and the defense is the reason that the struggles are happening, I think that would be um, maybe not a positive, but I, I have a lot of confidence in the Syracuse coaching staff getting the defense back on track uh, for 2016, then if the offense struggles all over again, and it's pretty obvious that Lester isn't the isn't the uh, the answer at o, at OC, but like you, I think the Lester that really detailed, really well done article by Bailey the other day, and he's been killing it all summer. Um, that did make me feel better. I think there's a lot of shades of what we saw in 2012 when that offense really turned it around. Uh, the option plays, the package plays, the the you know more simple. Uh, doing what's effective and learning, you know, where your best plays are. Um, a lot of the same things that made that streamline that 2012 offense and turn them into really a top 25, top 30 offense in the country by the end of that year um, seem to be in the in the plans for net, for this upcoming season. So uh, hopefully we, we see some, some fun football this year. If we see fun football and the team uh, has some promise, I think most of us will be okay even if we fall short of a bowl for, for year three. If it's another, you know, drudge of a year and, and the defense has to carry the offense, even though the defense is all sophomores, then that's probably an issue. Completely agree. And I know um, kind of touched on it a little bit um, in the defensive line uh, preview today, um, for those listening yesterday, um, there's a hell of a lot of freshmen, um, like a hell of a lot of freshmen. Um, and a lot of these kids are going to play. I mean, Ron Thompson is the most experienced guy um, on this line for the most part. Uh, and then after that, uh, you've got, you know, John Raymond, you've got some other guys who, who would be like for the most part, either redshirted or just simply didn't see the field. But by and large, this is a, this is a green, green, green group. And, you know, in the article, I kind of pointed out, um, you know, we've been here before. I think 2013, people were talking in similar tones about the SU uh, front. Um, and obviously, things turned out pretty well um, with the guys who just left. But um, this is different. Uh, this is different. This team is really, really, uh, you know, reliant on this pressure um, since Schaefer took over. And I mean, while I hope that's not the case again um, and that, that they don't rise and fall on what, what this front four does. Um, at the same time, uh, there's going to be there's a, there's an extra pressure um, on this group that that I'd say um, a unit of similar inexperience probably anywhere else in the country just wouldn't have on them. Yeah, it does remind me a bit of the 2013 uh, defensive line. I think that line, if I remember correctly, had a little more in terms of actual game experience, probably a little less uh, potential explosiveness. Um, but you had guys like Rob Welsh and Michael Robinson who had played a bit. They just hadn't been starters. Where this is just like a whole bunch of freshmen and some guys who, I mean, Ron Thompson's been a, a good player um, here and there, and I'm very excited to see what he does as kind of the prominent guy. But, you know, we have uh, Donnie Simmons, who has had a whole rash of injuries, but is an exciting player in terms of what he represents. And I remember when he was a recruit, he was like the guy who played defensive end, but it also – return kicks for touchdowns in his high school team. So 
he's definitely a one that we've been waiting for 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 what seems like you know seven or eight years. He, he's uh, I kind of remember him being like an early Maroon recruit, which is pretty crazy. Um, but yeah, I, I just there are similarities there. I think um, the ceiling is probably a little even a little higher for this group, and I do trust. Dallas more than just about anyone else in the staff to get guys ready, and he seems up for the challenge with what he said to the media. So, hopefully, the athleticism will win out. I think defensive line is a position where we have seen in Tulsa, we've seen freshmen come in and play well off the bat. Um, not necessarily at Syracuse all the time, but it is a place that's easier to step in and play right away than you know, obviously, quarterback or, or especially like offensive line. Very good point. Um... You mentioned Thompson. I mentioned Thompson. Everyone is mentioning Thompson. Uh, he's one of the few players who received um, any sort of attention for the uh, preseason All-ACC team. Um, do you think Thompson is primed for a good season this year? Or do you think he's primed for a great season? If the answer is great, uh, do you think that, that that's just a natural progression or something that is at this point been literally like thrust not to – are quoting comic book movies and, and all kinds of other things. But do you think that greatness is being thrust upon Ron Thompson um, and, and that he sort of has to produce at that level? Um, or, or do you think it's just something that just evolves over time? Um, I'm somewhere in between. I, I don't know that I expect him to be, you know, an all-ACC first-teamer, but I do think uh, he should be a, a very good player. He's you know, experienced enough. He's had his moments. Obviously, uh, Jameis Winston knows who he is, which is nice. Um, I think that the most important thing for Ron Thompson might be the play of John Raymond. Uh, because if we have a, a guy with Raymond's stature and his ability to, to plug the uh, middle of the defense, which when he's been healthy, he's been very good. Um, if he plays a full season and he lives up to the expectations and, and what we've seen of him in limited time in the past, then I think it frees up Thompson and Simmons and uh, a lot of these other guys to really make fly around and make plays as well as the, the really young linebackers who I assume we'll see plenty of blitzes out of because I've watched this team for six years now. Um, but if we don't have that kind of solidifying force in the middle, um, it'll be a lot tougher. So I think Thompson will be good. I'm not too worried about him. Uh, I am worried about Raymond mostly because of his health. Uh, and because as excited as I am to see Stephen, Stephen Clark play, um, I think we'd all rather not have a true freshman have to take on double teams from uh, ACC off the lines and, and be a key of the defense if he can avoid it. Uh, it's way better if he eases into that role. Um, but I think he'll be a factor either way as well. So I think Raymond might be the most important player on this entire roster outside of Terrell Hunt. Um, and he'll have a lot to do with the success of the rest of the front seven. All right. I buy that. Uh, I definitely, definitely buy that. Uh, what's been frustrating, and I, again, I said this in the, the piece, it's been frustrating not because Raymond hasn't produced, produced um, at defensive tackles, but because you just so badly want him to be able to put together a full season and to stay healthy and, and all that. I mean, he has the size, he has the talent. It's obvious. You can see it when he's on the field. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's especially like once you're out of college, it's, it's sad to see a kid who really just wants to play football, uh, not be able to do that, especially when he has so much potential. Um, so for what it's worth, I, I really, really hope to see him, um, 
on the field more often than he's not. Um, and, and I'm excited to see the type of role he plays in what should be a pretty strong, um, at least three man rotation um, at the tackle spots. Um, then out of, out of Chris Clayton and Caden Samuel, uh, you know, both guys really taking their first game snap um, this fall. Does either of them worry you, surprise you, or, or excite you more than more than the other? Or do you think that, that the two of them are really just going to be um, a combined force um, for this line, um, you know, throughout the season? I'm. I, I was very worried about it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I'm less so after reading the article without. Um, now I'd say I'm very cautiously optimistic. Um, I think Samuel, when reading he's one of the strongest guys on the team, is great. Uh, that that was my major reason for the you know my cautiously my cautious optimism. Um, I don't know that we know enough about either one of Samuel or Clark to have them set you know themselves apart. Obviously, Samuel has the built-in advantage of having been here for a year, so he'll you know have a, he obviously has taken advantage of his year in the weight room. Although Clark is supposed to be you know a really strong kid for for his age so i don't know if he'll be at a huge disadvantage there but you need three defensive tackles anyway so i don't expect uh one of them to really last for playing time but um i'm definitely feel better about the position uh having read the things about samuel and and dow saying that he's you know prepared to coach these guys up and he's not too worried about it um and if if they both pan out and they both have good years we have those guys for four seasons and if you can have a pair of starting defensive tackles for four years, like you're way ahead of the game because that's a very difficult position to recruit for. Absolutely. And you know what? I, I think, and this is kind of what people were hinting at in the comments, um, and you and I have kind of touched on here and there, is that the the win total, because not just of recruiting, I think we, we really touched on why the win total might not be as important because of the recruiting game, um, but really because of, you know, the experience and the type of uh, type of reps that, that a lot of young kids are going to get this season, um, and a lot of them have a ton of experience. And you know what, like getting some playing time freshman year, uh, it, it can be a hindrance, admittedly, to some. But to others, and, and, and if, if these are the kids we think they are, um, this will be the case. Um, it'll really give them kind of, you know, something to jump off of um, going forward. I mean, like you said, the defensive tackle having four years um, of a guy is a rarity. But, you know, it, it, it becomes a real possibility between those two and, and Clark and others um, who could really jump in there for the orange. Um, there's other positions, too, that I think, um, you know, we'll see some true freshman action. And, and I think uh, it, it will be beneficial and it will kind of set the orange up for success going forward. I mean, when there is further turnover in the roster next year, having um, a roster full of, you know, experienced sophomores, um, is, is I think, much, much more encouraging than having, you know, a bunch of departures and then a roster full of redshirt freshmen. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, just, I totally agree. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion, and once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.
Cool. Uh, so on that note, uh, halftime. I'm uh, I'm trying to kind of mow down this beer list to to keep it to you know a reasonable length since since it's been several weeks since we last met, Dan. Uh, I am doing the same. Uh, just getting this app open, and I think I'm good to go. Cool. So, uh, what did you drink? Um, I don't remember if I brought it up last time because I, I can't even remember, you know, what beer was what what my like last beer that I discussed on here was. But I'll start with it because I think it was pretty close. Um, I had Avery Bruins uh, Maharaja, which was excellent. Uh, has really good grades and everything everywhere. So. I was excited to see that on tap. Um, I might have talked about that the last time we did this, but that was a few weeks ago, so, you know, I'll just pretend that I've had it since, even though that's not true. Um, I've had uh, from Greenport Harbor Brewing, uh, their Cuvaison, which is a Belgian uh, strong pale ale, uh, very good. Um, had that a couple weekends ago, as well as a couple different uh, beers down in Virginia Beach that were local. Um my favorite of which was O'Connor's Red Nun Red Ale, which was really fantastic. I hadn't even heard of the brewery. I was down in Virginia Beach, the Norfolk Brewery. Um, really good stuff. Uh, good, you know, solid Red Ale flavor if you're if you're into those, which I know not everyone is, but I enjoy the good ones. Um, and then the other day I had from from Single Cup Beersmiths in Astoria, their Kim Red Raspberry Sour Lager. Um, Pretty low uh, alcohol. It's you know definitely uh, something you can drink a lot of. I think it's under four um, percent, but it, it it brings in the raspberry flavor well without being overpoweringly sweet. Um, definitely really tart, um, as you know sours tend to be, hence the name. Um, but really nice mix of flavors and, and really well balanced. I thought uh, kind of like a better version of like the UFO raspberry that you can find at Sagan if you're in Syracuse. Um, a little less like a little less uh, overpoweringly sweet and sugary uh, compared to that one. Um, if you like sours, I would definitely go try to find that. I'm not sure how wide their distribu- distribution is. I know they're a fairly new brewery, but uh, I have to not be heading up there um, this weekend. So I'll obviously talk about that more if we make it there in a couple of days. Yeah, that uh, that last one's kind of really interesting. I know I had I had one of theirs last time I was in New York. Um, hope to maybe be able to get out to Queens to uh, to check out the brewery itself the next time I'm in town uh, because I've heard some really good things about them overall. Yeah, it seems like they do a lot of different experimental things, and you know I'm a I'm a big fan of trying weird stuff that people seem to be a fan of. Uh, it's better than just trying you know everyone's take on IPA all the time. Although I do like a lot of IPAs, obviously. Could not agree more. Um, whole lot of stuff for me. So I'll again, I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. Um, Beachwood Brewing had their uh, four-year anniversary IPA out. It was uh, Hopernicus. Very, very good um, brew. It was my last beer in the uh, the old digs before moving to the new house. Um, see, lots of things happen while we're gone. I'm actually coming to everyone live from Redondo Beach, California now. No more Santa Monica, but the name Beach is still there. Still really nice weather, so can't complain. Other things I drank. Oh, this one's worth talking about. Um, Anger Celebrator, which I know is 
pretty much sitting on any Whole Foods shelf, a lot of different liquor store shelves. Um, I've passed it up. Dan, you've probably passed it up, and a lot of other people have too. Um, my advice, do not pass this one up. I finally just decided, eh, didn't know what I wanted a total wine, figured just go for it. It's a, it's a great doppelbock, and, you know, it really, really delivered. Uh, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Uh, might get it again soon now. I mean, definitely not like my favorite beer on the market by any means, but a great brew. Other things. Um, I know the last time I mentioned that the Amarillo Gorilla bottles are coming out. Uh, luckily, they did. They were actually like dirt cheap, talking like 450 cheap, uh, which was awesome. I had some of that. And I went to Denver, got to try some things uh, around that delightful city. Uh, no bear brewing. It's, uh, it's not like right in the heart of Denver. It's kind of off this like random strip mall to be honest. Uh, they make really, really great brews. Uh, they're only about a year old. So I had their uh, anniversary small sour uh, over there, uh, as well as their Boomtown Double IPA, uh, which is really enjoyable, not overly happy. Um, and then their Wine Barrel Aged Imperial Stout, um, which had a nice uh, kind of mix of, uh, of sweetness and, and, a, and a slight, slight bitterness at the end, uh, all of which I enjoyed. Other ones, got to check out um, Imperial Donut Break from Evil Twin, um, one you can probably find even more easily in your neck of the woods, Dan, um, given that a lot of their operations end up happening there. And that, no, it's definitely not it. Still scrolling, hold on. We had, oh, had the Coachman, the Session IPA from uh, Society Brewing down in San Diego. Um, Really, really great session. Uh, on aroma alone, you'd think it was a, a good, you know, 6.5 to 7.5 percent IPA, um, but actually, uh, well below that at around four. Or so, um, had Omni Prairie. Uh, it's uh, kind of a chocolate stout with uh, salt caramel flavors and, and coffee. Uh, it's from Prairie and uh, Omnipolo, who some folks should be associated with at the very least, um, and then. I'd say my favorite beer of the weekend uh, was King Harbor Brewing, my, uh, my new local brewery. They're about a mile from my house. Uh, they had their uh, IPA with coconut. And let me tell you, that was one fantastic beer. Um, wish I'd grabbed a growler of it because uh, it just tasted incredibly fresh. The coconut wasn't overly sweet. Uh, it wasn't overpowering. It complemented well. Um, overall, I was really, really glad that I made that decision because uh, it was just, again, a delicious beer. I don't know. I love coconut as a flavor. I don't know that I've ever had a coconut beer, honestly, um, or have really seen very many of them, which now surprises me now that I think about it. There's some good ones out there. I mean, that one's an interesting one. Um, I know that uh, Stone had oh, a few years back now, their uh, Dayman uh, Coconut Coffee IPA. Um, which was like one of the first, like generally available, um, you know, kind of IPA uh, with coffee involved. Um, Maui Coconut Porter um, is available in a lot of places out here. I don't know if it gets anywhere near you, um, but that's another popular one. Uh, I mean, obviously in general, coconut's going to play a little bit better on the darker side of beers versus the lighter ones where it could really overpower flavor in a hurry. 
Yeah, now I'm going to have to look out for those just because now I've like realized it's something I've been missing. <laughs> and then once you find out something you've been missing, you really just kind of have to pursue it until you have it because, you know, let's be real, why should anyone go without anything? No, I'm pretty sure that's like a, a main uh, edict of the 21st century. <laughs> very, very true. Um, so I wanted to kind of circle back a little bit. Um, this is kind of our last, uh, you know, podcast before we get to season preview stuff. Um, going back to what, you know, Bailey's article, um, talking to Lester, and then we talked to Bobby Acosta too. Um, and, and most importantly to me was Terrell Hunt. Um, while last year we really didn't hear from Hunt much, I don't think that McDonald's, really put much as much trust in Hunt as he should have. It seems from the get-go, Lester's really had a, a ton of trust in Hunt, um, really kind of, uh, you know, let him behind the curtain a little bit when he was injured last year. I mean, now, I mean, you, you hear Hunt talk about offensive concepts and, and, and really be, you know, buying fully in into this West Coast um, offense, or at least the portions of it that we're implementing. Um, does Hunt's endorsement say a lot to you? Because to me, again, it, it really does kind of speak to, you know, maybe this maybe this thing that, that Lester's doing is really, really going to work. Um, yeah, I mean, you don't want your, your player not endorsing his, head, his uh, offensive coordinator. So it's definitely better than the alternative. Um, it'll, it's hard to really know how much it'll mean until we actually see the offensive go out there and see how fluid it, it is on paper to we did hear a lot of these same things last year before McDonald's offense uh, came out there and looked like a car that wouldn't start. Um, but I think it is interesting to note that because uh, Hunt was hurt for so much of last year and he spent a lot of that time in the booth with Lester. So it's not like he's just been working with Lester since uh, January or February, whenever Lester was officially named off the coordinator uh, for the follow-up for this upcoming season. He's been getting a lot of face time with him since what, mid-October. So, I do think there should at least be a lot of familiarity there. Um, so that's exciting. And uh, I, do, I think everything has been, um, you know, it's been pretty good to hear, uh, especially because while I, it is, it has been, we've talked about it in our internal chats and stuff, it's kind of weird to hear how much the uh, players especially have kind of talked about how uh, dysfunctional the offense was last year, which – it really shouldn't be because we all watched it, but they've been very open about how it just didn't work, which I don't know that I've seen very much of from a college team before after a coordinator switch. Um, so maybe it really was like even worse than what we saw as fans and that this will be a, a giant turnaround just because the offense will make more sense and be more functional. Um, I do think that is notable and unique because you, you really don't hear very much of that often. Um, at least in my experience covering college football. So hopefully uh, hopefully this is all, you know, as good and as coherent and, and easy for the players to understand and grasp the concepts of uh, as we've been reading. Um, obviously, I don't know that we'd hear much different if it wasn't, but uh, we really won't know anything until they hit the field. So I, I don't see a reason not to be at least a little optimistic because why, why live your life uh, – saying that Syracuse will be bad before they actually prove it. Like, that could very well be the case, but you don't need to put that on, in your mind before they actually go out there and look awful. It's just, you know, try to be a little optimistic with this team, I guess. I feel like that's a better way of going about things. 
Oh, very true. And I know for the most part, like, I think the, the fan base is, is split. Um, I think there's a lot of people who who will choose to be positive before negative. I think there's a lot of people who choose to be negative before positive. And then there's also the, the extra um, kind of factions of, of, of fan base that, uh, that are positive and put the blinders on, and then there's those who are negative and also put their own blinders on. Um, and, and I think in general, um, you know, for me, I, I despite the, the weekly torture I put myself through last uh, season, I did try to be negative first, but still willing to see the positive. Um, and, and you know what? I'm, I'm definitely kind of a neutral right now, which I guess is an improvement uh, in my book. I, like I said, I think that Lester article helps a lot. I think, and I know we kind of talked about this internally, uh, Lester's candor is uh, is refreshing, given kind of how much um, SU athletics in general uh, can, you know, shut other people out. Um, and, and to have a coaching staff that it's really, I mean, especially with some of Schaefer's statements about, you know, what the media wants to do to sell papers, which we won't even get into because that's a podcast in and of itself. Um, it, it's interesting to see Lester act opposite that um, and and really kind of open up and, and, and tell people and, you know, fans, media, whatever, what they want to know, which is how this office is going to run, um, and, and kind of what to expect. And I, I think for us, it's really all, all we ask for as fans and, you know, for for those of us who, who write at the site, you know, at least in part journalists around the school. Um, it's just good to be treated like someone who deserves an update. Yeah. And, and Lester Sanders is, is uh, it, it's very clear he's not super media trained, um, but he is articulate. So it's not like what he's saying is, it doesn't make sense. Uh, it's just funny because he's not totally afraid to, you know, talk about how poorly what last year went from an, an insider's perspective, which is nice for us. Um, I kind of think he and Rob Trudeau should have, like, a, some kind of web series where they just bash things that aren't working in football. Um, that'd be fun. But uh, I do agree. I think last year, obviously, once we figured Lester was getting the job, like, we were pretty harsh on that decision, and I don't feel bad about that. I, I still maintain it would have been nice for Schaefer to go and see what was available on the coaching market in terms of established offensive coordinators. But what there have been uh, there has been a faction of the fan base that has been so aghast by that decision up through August now, months and months later, that they just have totally written off this team, and you know. Maybe Lester wasn't qualified for the job, but he has it now. And nothing that's happened since – it's like when people complain about recruiting rankings change uh, between seasons when nothing – the kids haven't played. Nothing's happened with Lester's offense that has made him a better or worse candidate than he was in October and November. He's not going to get fired just because Schaefer realized, oh, my God, I hired the defensive the D3 guy. Um, like, it, it hasn't – nothing's changed at all. So – we knew that we were getting Lester back during the season. We knew he was going to be here. So why not at least try to give him a shot, even if you didn't agree with the hire in the first place? That's just where I'm coming from. I know you feel similarly. I just don't get the people that have totally written off the team based on no new evidence past what we knew in November. So, And I'm totally willing to give him a pass on last year's offense. You can question why he didn't change the cadence thing, which I think is legitimate or why he didn't try to start implementing some of his offensive stuff last year, which I don't think is quite as legitimate, having 
you know, been through the process of installing a football offense before uh, on, as a player. But um, I don't think what he did with McDonald's offense, which is something he didn't even build, is something to really criticize him for. So I, you know, he could end up being an abject disaster. It wouldn't totally surprise me. But I also wouldn't surprise me if he actually is a pretty bright, young, offensive mind who maybe takes him a, a little while to adjust like he did for Nate Hackett, who ended up being very good by the end of his, uh, his last season here. Um, we just have to wait and see. Like, nothing we hear uh, in the summer has been – has done anything but make me a little more optimistic. And it all doesn't really matter because in a month's time, we're going to see the first game, and then we'll all be able to make our own judgments. Very true. Um, I think not anything to add to that. Um, I guess switching focus a little bit to a fan base who I like a lot of those guys, but there's also a lot of issues we're finding uh, like undercover since the announcement we were joining the uh, ACC with NC State. Um, I know if there's any fan base that had more of a problem with uh, with yesterday's uh, Premier League article, it was them. Um, how do you feel if you're an NC State fan uh, and you have George McDonald on staff right now, um, given everything that's come out about what he's done um, with SU and just what hasn't worked? I mean, obviously he's not calling plays there, but I mean, do you feel great? Because I, I don't know if I would. I wouldn't be overly concerned because Matt Tannen is very established as the coordinator there, and he did a pretty good job last year with Jacoby Brissett, who is one of the better returning starters at quarterback in the league. Um, no matter how else we think about NC State. I would be concerned that he totally flew off the handle after being demoted, which it doesn't isn't totally clear that we were going to even tell people about. Um, it seems like he just got really mad at the rest of the staff and totally made a situation out of something that could have been handled internally. So that part of things I wouldn't be thrilled about. But um, I also don't expect NC State fans to really pay attention to the inner workings of Syracuse's three and nine season. So I doubt many of them even really know about that or, or how bad that was or how unprofessional it was. Um, so if I was an NC State fan for some reason coming off of a year where I paid exclusive uh, a ton of attention to Syracuse, I'd probably be a little concerned, especially if something did, didn't go well with the wide receivers. But if uh, if I was an NC State fan who focused more on NC State last year, I probably wouldn't have all that much of an opinion either way. Fair enough. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Um, looking a little more at McDonald, um, we won't touch on kind of his impact at NC State on the wide receivers this year um, until next week, the Atlantic uh, Division. Um, do you think um, that the wide receivers, and this is, again, we're going to expand upon all of this next week, um, and several weeks from now, we're going to just Syracuse preview. Um, do you think that that McDonald did some harm, I mean, not intentionally, but harmed the development of our wide receivers last year. And, and this year, do you think that 
Petacosta and and Lester combined are, are going to really help that group, even if we don't see, you know, earth-shattering numbers. Do you think that overall that group is better situated this season? Uh, I don't know that he harmed the receivers. Um, I thought the receivers did about as much as they could have last year. Uh, Ishmael obviously got off to a nice start. Um, West had a, a sneaky, really good year, despite the fact that we were playing with our fourth-string uh, quarterback at times. Um, I don't know what happened with the tight ends last year, but I'm not sure how much of that is McDonald's fault, aside from just being the offensive coordinator that decided to apparently just not use them at all. Um, but I, I feel good about Acosta. I think, I mean, obviously most of his impact that we know about has been recruiting where he's been surprisingly probably our best guy. Um, but he seems to be really energetic. I can see where he could, would connect well with players. Uh, so I, I'm fairly excited about the receivers just because I think there's a lot of very interesting pieces there between a guy like Ishmael, who we think will all, we, I think we all think will be a star. Um, a guy like Ridley Esteem, who we haven't really seen uh, more than flashes out of, but we know has a lot of ability. Guys like Adley Anoisi, um and Jamal Trostis, who's more of a tight end, who are just big guys who can go up and get the ball. I think there's a lot of interesting, diverse pieces to play with. So um, I don't know enough about Acosta as a receiver's coach, uh, but if he's, you know, as good there as he is doing his other job as as a recruiter, um, I think I have reason to be pretty excited, and I, I just think the talent of the team is exciting. So hopefully, uh, I think this is going to end all end up being more about Terrell Hunt anyway. So I wouldn't be too worried about him uh, having a hugely negative impact. Uh, I think uh, at worst we'll probably get the same level of play as last year, um, but hopefully the quarterback situation is a whole lot better. That's a fair point. Um, I guess lastly, before we uh, kind of sign off for today, save plenty for the preview episodes. Um, there was another great article, uh, again, more Lester Kander, uh, great article kind of describing his relationship with Jake Moreland. Um, what is What do you think Moreland brings to the table? I think, to be honest, from my point of view at least, having a, a former tight end and having just former players who used to play positions uh, you know, turn into coaches for the SU staff. I think it's really, really resonating with kids, um, both kids that we're recruiting and kids who who are, you know, on the team this year. And I, I while we don't exactly know yet what this two tight end set uh, will look like in game, I have to think that right away we're going to see a huge spike um, in, in tight end usage, if nothing else, this year. I agree. I think just bringing in a dedicated tight end coach, I know he helps out with the offensive line as well with their um, their blocking schemes, especially on the outside. But uh, having a dedicated tight end coach, I think that just tells you that they're going to focus more on the position. And we have a lot of guys who are like, you know, kind of uh, interchangeable tight end, H-back, uh, big receiver types, where it's an interesting position on SU's roster. Um, so you definitely want to utilize it. Uh, and it's a place that I think we're going to probably hopefully focus more on recruiting. Um, but uh, it's also a good thing that I, I – I'm glad he has a prior relationship with Lester just because, you know, you want a guy that uh, will fit in well, and it seems like he's done that, especially after a year we had some issues on the coaching staff with the whole McDonald situation. So um, I know we've kind of at times questioned bringing in friends and stuff, but I do also think it was important to bring someone in who would mesh well and who would fill that role and and has a a good working relationship. 
you know, even if he's not part of the group that was having house parties every night that we read about before Schaefer or in Schaefer's first couple months and other wives are best friends. Like, I don't know if he's that far inside with this group, but there's definitely a comfortability there, which, which makes me feel good. And um, I think tight ends, you know, we've used them the greatest uh, extent in the last couple of years. Um, in 2012 uh, with Nassib, I know Provo was one of his favorite targets. And 2013, obviously, he had one of our biggest plays as a touchdown pass to a tight end. So the disappearance of them from the offense last year was crazy. Uh, and hopefully that is not an issue this year. Very much agreed. I think as Hunt, uh, you know, last year was getting settled in a new offense, and now this year, um, hopefully we, we see something different. Um, having a tight end is a safety valve, um, whether that's for Hunt or last year for Long or, or Wilson. Um, you know, having that safety valve there is key. It was puzzling why, why they weren't used as much as they should have been. Um, so, yeah, it, it'll be... It'll be a relief, um, I think, to see that position uh, used more. I think we're going to see similar types to, to Trey Dunkelberger uh, coming in in the future. Guys who, yes, can catch the ball, yes, can make plays, um, but are physically suited to block. Um, I think that was the most puzzling part last year was that if you're going to, especially in the first half with McDonald's was calling plays, is if you're going to, you know, run a lot of screen plays and, and spread a lot of guys out wide, might as well have blockers ready for him. So... I, I mean, no, we're not going to see bubble screens this year, but I think we're going to see a lot better, uh, you know, downfield blocking um, solely based on a, a wider usage of tight ends. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think you're right, and I think we've we've kind of learned that just because of how involved more, uh, Moreland's been so far. Um, but I mean, they just weren't useful at all last year in general, and. Uh, especially if blocking is a major issue. I mean, that that can derail an offense as well. So it's nice that we've kind of been let in a little more than we probably thought we would this offseason uh, in the last couple of weeks in terms of um, just kind of learning more about the issues that were very apparent, but we, you know, we maybe we didn't know what, what they stemmed from. Um, so while we, you know, there's a legitimate right to be made with how the staff has discussed and handled the media, uh, especially Schaefer in some ways, um, which I'm not a fan of at all. Uh, on the other hand, we have gotten some interesting access to the coaches, especially recently. So hopefully this is Schaefer, you know, learning to utilize that group and utilize it as a post-standard to, you know, tell us a little bit about why last year went so poorly. Like, it's not, it's not like he's breaking any news. We all know last year was a disaster. At least, like, let us behind the curtain a little bit and, and let us understand why these things happen. Um, and I think they've done that. So I, I do appreciate that as a fan. No, I think I think that's perfect. I, I think that in general, you know what, we've wanted answers, and yeah, while Schaefer hasn't provided many of them, um, it seems that the others have, and, and that's encouraging. Uh, ending on a, a, a more upbeat note, though, Dan, what is the one thing in sports that you're excited about this week? I know we, again, we're, we're going to be focusing less on SU, specifically for the next several weeks and, and going more SU in the broad sense of the ACC. But so in general, what is highlighting your sports world right now? Um, I, I hate to do this to people who don't care. Uh, the New York Mets just won their sixth game in a row and are now, looks like by the end of the night, they'll be two games ahead of the Nationals in the NL East, which is insanity based on where this team was two weeks ago when it was basically had a triple A lineup out there. And 
losing two to one games every night, despite the fact that we have the best rotation in baseball. Um, and, you know, I don't expect the team to go undefeated here. Now they almost blew an awful game tonight where they were up eight, nothing and one eight six, but um, the Mets team, they are for real. And this is a team that they might not make the playoffs, but they're going to be in it until late September. Um, the pitching is as good as you've read about. If you're not a Mets fan, it, no one, people aren't blowing smoke. The pitching is unbelievable. Um, exciting outings pretty much every night, and it's going to get better when Stephen Matz, who's our you know next phenom rookie, comes back. He had two amazing uh, two first two games, and then had a lat injury, so he should be back in September. So uh, college football does feel like it's coming very soon. Uh, this week, it seems like a lot of people kind of woke up and are getting the college football stuff out there, which is exciting. But I haven't had baseball uh, August baseball to actually enjoy since 2008. Um, and that wasn't a good year by the end of it. So I'm going to continue to obnoxiously tweet about the Mets every night uh, until they give me reason not to. Hey, I don't blame you there. I was once in that boat. And I, I, I remember the misery vividly. Uh, I figured you were going to say that, so I wanted to get, let you get your uh, get your Mets time in there. Uh, for me, I'll just quickly end with this. Uh, Premier League starts this weekend. Uh, Saturday, be specific. Uh, 4 a.m. Pacific time starts on Saturday. Uh, I doubt I'll be up as early for that. But in general, I don't sleep on Saturday, well, on Friday nights into Saturday from, like, mid-August through the end of the Premier League season in May. So looking forward to that, uh, you know, weekendly ritual. My wife is not. That said, now that we're actually in a full-size home instead of a small apartment, she won't have to hear the TV turn on and have Lee Corso screaming um, or, in the case of the Premier League, having a bunch of Brits um, anxiously talk about what's happening on the pitch when she doesn't care. So, again, all these things positive, the Mets, the Premier League, the impending start of college football, all of which I am genuinely happy for, even if the Mets faithful will call me traitors. We'll, we'll embrace you back. You just had to join up like in the next couple of weeks and, and you can hop on for the veteran of bandwagon. No one will judge you. It's, it's too late because I'm, I'm on the other bandwagon. I, I, the, the problem is I can't jump a bandwagon when, when, when the Dodgers are already a real thing and, and, and tangible, right? <laughs> yeah, but the Mets are going to be so much more fun if they made the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Well, I I understand that you have Kershaw and Brinkley, which is fun, but we have Harvey and DeGrom and Cinderdard and Matt and Nice, which is like five pitchers. So, and we're young and scrappy and have the ability to really blow up in a disastrous fashion. So there's the risk and the risk reward involved. Um, so yeah, if you want to come back to the Mets bandwagon, we will, we just want to be loved. So we will embrace you with open arms. <laughs> I will always have a special place for the Mets. And to be honest with Dodgers at this point, and, and I will I will say no matter which, if either of those teams win this year, I will not feel like I've earned it. And I think that's the greatest punishment of all. <laughs> well, if the Mets win 85 games, my roommate and I have agreed, uh, we've kind of bet ourselves that uh, we'll buy season tickets next year, which was made the day before opening day, I think, and now looks like a financial mistake. But um, 
we'll deal with that when it comes. Because if the Mets win 55 games, uh, I'll probably be pretty happy in all other regards. Very true. Godspeed, sir. Starting to save away as I as I can. <laughs> all right. And on that note, uh, for those who haven't tuned out already, um, thanks for uh, joining us for another hour-long episode of Troy Noons is an absolute podcast. Um, I'm John. That was Dan. Dan, thanks again for uh, stopping by. It's a pleasure as always. And uh, while we can't say go orange just yet, uh, please join us for the next few weeks um, as we preview the season that will be hopefully positive for SU. Um, and yeah, rate, review, the whole deal, you know, blog talk, iTunes, anywhere else you might listen to us. Uh, it does help, and we appreciate it. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.